Good evening, I'm Amna Nawaz. Jeff Bennett is away. On the news hour tonight, President Biden pushes back at the special counsel's comments on his mental fitness that the White House calls gratuitous. A climate scientist's million-dollar legal victory shines a light on conservatives' attacks on science. And the father of a Palestinian-American teenager killed in the West Bank remembers his son. My son was full of life. A 17 years old, always happy and smiles. Never said anything to hurt anybody's feelings. He had dreams. They took all that away from him. Welcome to the News Hour. On Thursday, special counsel Robert Hur's report concluded that no criminal charges were warranted against President Biden for his handling of classified documents. However, the report made several references to President Biden's age and called his memory into question. The president shot back last night. I'm well-meaning and I'm an elderly man and I know what the hell I'm doing. I've been president and I put this country back on its feet. White House correspondent Laura Brown Lopez has been following all this and joins me now. Laura, the president spoke directly to the nation last night about this report in a very heated press conference. Why? Sources inside the White House told me that the president felt compelled to respond, that he wanted to highlight that there were no charges, remind people of that, and point out the differences between the way he handled his classified documents and the way former President Donald Trump handled, uh, handled the classified documents. Basically, that he cooperated and immediately gave them back. Former President Trump didn't. They also wanted to dispute what they called editorializing about his memory and age, and they thought that it would be a good time for him to take questions. And he's not being criminally charged. So what did the president highlight from the report and what's the White House challenging in there? Specifically, the president wanted to talk about the parts of the report where Robert Hur, the special counsel, said that he did not willfully retain classified documents, uh, talking about classified Afghanistan documents as well as others, um, and that they felt as though there was uh, no real evidence to say that the president intentionally did this. He also got emotional about the parts of the report that uh, had to do with his son, Beau Biden, uh, specifically that the report said that the president did not remember even within several years when his son, Beau, died. And so the White House was really angered by that. The president was angered by that, and you saw that uh, in his remarks. They've, uh, the White House basically universally felt, uh, everyone in there, uh, the White House official that I spoke to told me, that the special counsel, they felt as though the special counsel was performing for, quote, MAGA Republicans, and that it was time for the president to respond to that. That's a very strong emotional response from the president on that. Well, the White House did continue to respond today, and they're announcing a task force, right? What will that do? So this task force is going to review the presidential transition process, and specifically how classified documents are handled during that transition. Transitions can get messy, they can get speedy, people can make mistakes, and so Biden is going to appoint a senior government, government official to oversee that new task force that will make recommendations. And what about from the wider Democratic Party? What's been the response among them? Democrats uh, were quick to point out that the mental fitness and, you know, misspeaking is not just a President Biden problem, that it is something that is also a, a problem for former President Donald Trump, who has frequently mixed up foreign leaders. Victor Orban, did ever, anyone ever hear of him? He's probably like one of the strongest leaders anywhere in the world. And he, uh, he's the leader of, right, he's the leader of Turkey fronts on both Russia so Viktor Orban is not the leader of Turkey. He is the leader of Hungary. And President Trump has also frequently mixed up Nikki Haley and Nancy Pelosi. Overall, Amna, Democrats were really upset about this report. I spoke to Congresswoman Debbie Dingell who, uh, from the swing state of Michigan who said that she was so upset that she wanted to share with me this personal detail that the President Biden always checks in with her this week every year because it's the anniversary of her husband's death. She now occupies his seat in Congress. And it's also very close to Beau Biden's birthday. You know, this is an issue that has been plaguing the president, will likely continue to plague him through his reelection campaign. How is this impacting or resonating among voters? So Democrats admit that this is going to be something they have to confront head on. I spoke to Jim Messina, who ran uh, former President Barack Obama's 2012 campaign, and he said that voters need to see more of Biden. 
Americans are going to have questions about this. Age is an issue for both candidates. And part of how you address it as a former presidential campaign manager, my advice to them is always transparency is important here. People need to see the president doing his job where Joe Biden is the best is talking to average Americans. And the more he can do that, the, the better off uh, he is. And, you know, I think some of the, the problem has been you know, it's always these kind of scripted moments or these sort of White House moments. And voters want to see him out with them talking about these things. And, and I think the campaign's got to do more of that. But I also spoke to a Democratic state party chair who told me that every time that they knock on doors to talk to voters, voters ask them questions like, why didn't Joe Biden retire and pass the torch to the younger generation? So across the board, the Democrats that I spoke to said that the campaign, that they themselves need to take it on, take it head on, the president's age. And when they take that head on, they tend to pivot to, with age comes experience, Anna. Laura Bruin-Lopez, thank you as always. Thank you. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered the military to develop plans to evacuate Rafah, the southernmost city in Gaza. Its pre-October 7th population was 100,000. Today, Gazans from all over the Strip have filled tent cities there. More than half of Gaza's 2.3 million people have fled to Rafah. And even before today's order, Israel has been maintaining pressure on Rafah, launching dozens of airstrikes. At the same time, there's progress on talks that would pause the fighting. Nick Schifrin is here with more on that. Nick, you have new details on the hostage negotiations. What do we know? Uh, a U.S. official tonight confirms to me that Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, will head to Cairo soon to participate in another round of negotiations over a hostage deal. And he has been the crucial U.S. official leading those negotiations. And as a reminder of how we got here, two weeks ago, Israel agreed to a plan negotiated by the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt to an initial six-week pause that would be extended in three phases of hostage releases. Hamas's counterproposal this week required an Israeli withdrawal first from cities, then all of Gaza. Israel interpreted that counterproposal as Hamas remaining in power after the war. But U.S. officials tell me that while that was going on, there's been progress in those negotiations just in the last few days, despite Netanyahu's public statements. Remember, he called Hamas's counterproposal, quote, delusional, and of course, what you mentioned at the top of this, threatening to expand the war uh, into Rafah. So Burns is hoping to maintain that progress mm -hmm. that officials tell me has been made in the last few days, but also keep pressure on Netanyahu to take these negotiations seriously. The question for Netanyahu is, will he allow his spy chief, David Barnea, the head of Mossad, who's been leading the Israeli negotiations, you see him there, to go to Cairo to keep the negotiations going? And this is crucial, Amna. As we've been talking about, the U.S. believes that even a temporary cop, even a temporary pause, is the key to trying to unlock its broad broader goals across the region, Gaza reconstruction, Gaza governance uh, after the war, and of course, the big goals, uh, two-state solution and normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. As you mentioned, though, Netanyahu is threatening to expand the war, not pause it, let alone stop it. So how difficult is that going to be in a place like Rafah? Uh, extremely difficult. As you pointed out, more than a million people are living in Rafah. That is 10 times the pre-October 7th population. Uh, and U.S. officials insist that Israel does not have any military plans ready for Rafah, let alone any plans to deal with all of those civilians, as Deputy State Department spokesman Vedant Patel said yesterday. We have yet to see any evidence of serious planning for such an operation or, and to do conduct such an operation right now with no planning and uh, little thought in an area where uh, there is sheltering of a million people um, would be a, a disaster. You can actually see Patel referring to his notes. So they had planned to make that statement before the briefing. Uh, and that's a shift for the administration. It does not usually warn Israel not to conduct an operation that it has not yet launched. And that's what we saw from multiple U.S. officials yesterday. We also heard President Biden last night, last night making his most pointed critique of how Israel has launched this war. The conduct of the response in the Gaza Strip has been um, over the top. Initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, 
did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. Innocent people and innocent women and children who are also in bad, badly need of help. Part of that soundbite, of course, was uh, President Biden mixing up uh, LCC for AMLO, the president of Mexico, for the president of Egypt. But the fact is that U.S. officials believe Netanyahu is serious about going into Rafah, and they really wanted to make the point that it was a bad idea. Uh, but they also make the point that Netanyahu, behind the scenes, is negotiating, is making progress for that pause in Gaza to release the hostages. So they say there is some bluster in what Netanyahu is doing because he is trying to maintain his coalition that includes far-right uh, politicians who have threatened to leave the coalition, bring down the government if he presses pause on the war. So the question, of course, uh, Amna, that we have tonight is, will Netanyahu try and achieve his military goals in the coming days or weeks, or will he embrace the possibility that this war could at least pause? Uh, and of course, that is what the U.S. wants to open up those larger negotiations across the region. We'll see where those negotiations lead. Nick Schifrin with the very latest. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. In the day's other headlines, President Biden huddled with Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz on getting new military aid to Ukraine. The president said it will be, quote, close to criminal neglect if Congress fails to act. Scholz said U.S. and European support is vital to let Ukraine defend itself against Russia. The Senate is now working on a $95 billion package for Ukraine and Israel after Republicans blocked a separate bill this week. Russian President Vladimir Putin urged the U.S. today to get Ukraine to agree to peace talks. He spoke in an interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson that aired last night on the Tucker Carlson Network website. Putin also suggested a possible prisoner swap for Evan Gershkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter jailed in Russia. Putin's remarks were dubbed into English. By the end of the day, it does not make any sense to keep him in prison in Russia. We want the U.S. Special Services to think about how they can contribute to achieving the goals our Special Services are pursuing. We are ready to talk. Gershkovich has been held since last March on espionage charges, which he denies. In Pakistan, independent candidates backed by former Prime Minister Imran Khan took a surprisingly strong lead today in elections for parliament. Khan himself is in prison and banned from running, but allies claimed 95 of the 235 seats, with most of Thursday's results reported. As the outcome became clear, former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif reversed course and called for a coalition government. Back in this country, former President Trump is celebrating more election wins as he works to clinch the Republican presidential nomination. He swept all the delegates in last night's GOP caucuses in Nevada as the only major candidate taking part. He's also won caucuses in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Earthquakes shook millions of people across Hawaii and Southern California today. The first struck the Big Island of Hawaii on the southern flank of Moana Loa. The second hit near Malibu and sent shockwaves across the Los Angeles region. There were no reports of major damage or injuries. On Wall Street, big tech stocks led much of the market higher, but blue chips lagged behind. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 54 points to close at 38,671. The Nasdaq rose 197 points, or 1 percent. The S&P 500 added 28 and closed above 5,000 for the first time. And a passing of note in the arts. Famed Japanese conductor Seiji Ozawa has died in Tokyo after suffering heart failure. He led the Boston Symphony Orchestra for 29 years until 2002. His animated style captivated crowds, and he broke barriers for East Asian musicians. Here he is in 1975, conducting the Boston Symphony in Mahler's Symphony No. 2. Seiji Ozawa was 88 years old. Still to come on the News Hour, multiple governors turned down a summer food assistance program, putting millions of children at risk. David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. Best-selling author Kwame Alexander on his new collection of black poets' work, poems of hope, 
heart and heritage, plus much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. A long legal battle ended yesterday when a jury found that two conservative writers had defamed the prominent climate scientist Michael Mann, awarding him a million dollars in damages. Amid increasing attacks on science, William Brangham looks at what this verdict means. Um, now, over his long career, Michael Mann has been an influential contributor to climate research, as well as becoming one of the most effective communicators about climate change's impact. But he has also faced considerable backlash. In 2012, a conservative policy analyst compared Mann to a child sex abuser, saying that instead of molesting children, he molested and tortured data. Another called his work fraudulent. Mann sued them both, and yesterday, after 12 years, he won his case. We turn now to another prominent scientist who has also endured this kind of vitriol. Dr. Peter Hotez is the dean of the National School of... Center for Vaccine Development. Dr. Hotez, great to see you again. Um, I, I know you are in very different fields, but I, I have to imagine there was a small sense of victory that you must have felt seeing Michael Mann win this defamation case. Well, absolutely. And and remember the attacks, now there's uh, somewhat of a convergence of the attacks on climate science with the attacks on biomedicine. And it's in some cases, it's coming from the identical forces. I think the message for for this week is, remember the attacks denigrating science and trying to uh, undercut uh, science, uh, both for climate science and biomedicine, is not just about the science. It's now gone the next step to attack the scientist and portray us as public enemies. And that's where it really starts to get dangerous. So uh, both Michael and I are, are stalked regularly. We're, um, we receive threats uh, online, phone calls to the office, sometimes uh, physical. Uh, confrontations. So it's gone on to that new level. And so I think the reason the court victory is important, it sends a signal that while it's certainly fine to disagree with the science and express skepticism, it crosses a line when you're attacking scientists and putting us in danger. Can I just ask you what that is like? I mean, you spend a career, as, as Michael Mann did in a very different field, but you spend a career trying to create medicines to help people and to help humanity, which you have clearly done. And then to be attacked like that and to be to worry about threats to your life, I'm just wondering what that is like as a professional. Well, it can be demoralizing at times. Uh, remember, I, I did my MD and PhD 40 years ago to make vaccines for global health, to make low-cost, affordable vaccines for for the world that the big pharma companies wouldn't make. And we've made vaccines for parasitic infections, low-cost COVID vaccines, reaching 100 million people or, or more. And and I always considered that something you know important and meaningful and to make the world better. And so the idea now that you'd be attacked for it, first of all, um, it, it can be demoralizing. But second, um, to actually feel like you're uh, in, in danger in, in some level, your family's in danger, uh, that, that's what's really worrisome. And so I think that's a reason why you know, the, the court ruling uh, this week is, is kind of a line in the sand that say, stop, you know, you cannot, you know, it's fine to disagree, but when you attack scientists, um, you're affecting not only the scientific field, but um, sending chilling messages to future generations of scientists that maybe this is not something you want to go into. Michael Mann said after this verdict that he hopes that this sends a message that falsely attacking a scientist is is not protected speech. Is it your sense that, that this kind of a victory will serve to blunt that army of people out there who are sniping at you all? I don't know. Um, you know, is this a one-off thing or is it? will it be more enduring? I, I think it's it's too soon to tell. First of all, Remember, resorting to the courts is is something that's nobody's first choice. Look, in Michael's case, he had to go through 12 years of this. Uh, I mean, who who wants to do that? I mean, if you, you know, if you gave me the choice, do I want to spend my day 
developing a new human hookworm vaccine that's looking promising to benefit the hundreds of millions of people who suffer from hookworm anemia on the African continent, Asia, and Latin America? Or do I want to make cold calls to plaintiff attorneys? It, it's no contest, right? I mean, this I want I want to be a scientist, and so does Michael. So, so this is uh, this actually says something else that we don't have the systems in place right now to protect scientists, and too often we're on our own. And and having to find plaintiff attorneys and think about suing people is nobody's first choice, nobody's first option. And I have to imagine that a lot of these attacks now that come anonymously, driven by bots, now by AI, has got to make it even harder to defend yourself. I mean, Michael Mann at least had two people who signed their names to the vitriol they spewed at him. Yeah, it's it's coming from all sectors. Um, it's it's coming from uh, foreign foreign actors. We know that there are bots and trolls coming from Putin's Russia. That's that's really disturbing. Uh, in some cases, it's coming anonymously. Often cases, it's coming from from bloggers and podcasters who are actually making a living um, targeting science and and scientists. And now it's even gone the next level. We're actually seeing um, at least two U.S. senators uh, uh, boasting about how they target scientists. Same with um, some uh, some members of Congress from the House Freedom Caucus. And there's a whole system in place at Fox News to amplify this. So it's the point is there's an entire ecosystem of attacks on science which I kind of understand, but also the scientists. And when they start portraying us as public enemies, that puts us in danger. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. A new federal food assistance program is aiming to reduce child hunger by giving low-income families money for summer groceries. But only those who live in certain states will have access to that relief. John Yang explains. Many children who qualify for free or reduced school lunches would lose that benefit when the school year ended. But now a new program aims to bridge that gap by giving needy families $40 a month for each child who's eligible while the school is not in session money to buy food at grocery stores, farmers markets, or other approved outlets. It's called Summer EBT for electronic benefits transfer because the money is electronically loaded onto cards like debit cards. 35 states have signed up for the program, aiding an estimated 21 million children. But 15 other states have said no, excluding about 8 million children. Crystal Fitzsimons is director of child nutrition programs for the Food Research and Action Center, an advocacy group that works to reduce poverty-related hunger. Crystal, how big a problem is it for needy families to lose that benefit when school's not in session? Yeah, well, so we have millions of families who rely on free and reduced price school lunch during the school year. And when the school bell rings, they lose access to those meals. And during the summer, we see an increase in food insecurity. We see kids gaining more weight. And there's just a tremendous amount of stress on families when they need to replace those breakfasts and lunches that they could rely on during the school year. So it's a huge hardship. And the summer EBT program, like you said, is just an amazing new opportunity to make sure that kids are not going hungry during the summer. Before this program, was there any way for uh, children to get free or reduced price lunches? Well, we have the summer meals program, and that will continue. And in a lot of ways, it's an amazing program. Often it combines activities and enrichment for kids along with the meals, but it served only a fraction of the kids who relied on free and reduced price school meals during the school year. And as a result, we saw food insecurity go up. So summer EBT really is designed to kind of bridge that gap. And in the other programs, they'd have to go to a location rather than have the money go directly to the parents. That's exactly right. So it's great when there is a site in the community and there's also families are going to be able to pick up meals too in rural areas this summer, but summer EBT really is kind of the easiest way to get resources to families to purchase food. 
The 15 states that opted out of this program, what reasons did they give for doing that? So there were a lot of reasons, um, and they can come into the program in 2025. So the door is open, and we really encourage them to consider it. But it is a relatively new program, and so states are implementing it for the first time this summer, and so some states just needed a little more time. States also have to provide 50% of the admin costs, and so it's taking states a little bit more time to figure out where that money's coming from. But we are hopeful that by 2025, all the states will be in the program. Did some governors have philosophical differences with this? Well, there were a couple of governors who did come out and express concerns about the program, um, Iowa and Nebraska. Um, but we are hopeful that when they take another look at the program, they'll reconsider it. Because some of the things that they said, like that it was a pandemic era program, Really, that's just not true. We've had an issue with summer hunger since I've started working at FRAC 25 years ago, and it continues every summer when families lose access to those meals. So hopefully in 2025, those states will actually take advantage of this tool to make sure that the kids in their state aren't going hungry. But for this summer, there are 15 states that are not, that are opted out. You have millions of children beyond the reach of this program. What are your concerns and worries about those children? Well, the concern is that food insecurity will go up again in those states during the summer. But we do encourage families to access the summer meals program. Those are still available in those states, and they do provide an important resource for families. One of the governors who said no was Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa. She said that rather than creating a new program with what she said would be a new bureaucracy, she thought the administration should give the states flexibility under current programs so they could do this on their own. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, I would say that the summer EBT program is a program that has been piloted for more than a decade, and the pilots have shown that food insecurity goes down when families have access to it, and nutrition goes up. So it's not, it is technically a new program in that it, you know, is available to all states nationwide this summer, but it has been piloted because we knew that there was a problem during the summer and Congress did act about 10 to 12 years ago to actually pilot it. And those evaluations just show what an amazing program it is. Earlier you said that during the summer children gain weight. Is that because they're eating unhealthily? During the summer, kids lose access to free and reduced price school meals, which do have nutrition standards and do provide some of the healthiest meals that kids are eating. And so during the summer, kids can be less active. I know a lot of people think that kids are out at the park and we have these visions of what it's like for the summer for kids, but they may be less active. And then if families are struggling to put food on the table, if you provide more resources to them, then they're likely gonna spend it on healthier food too. Looking more broadly, beyond just uh, children, school children, where do we stand on food insecurity now in this country for, for just the general population? Yeah, well, so food insecurity, um, you know, did go up in 2022, the most recent data that we have. It continues to stay with us, and there are a lot of ways to combat it, but one of the easiest ways to combat it is to give families more resources to purchase food. Crystal Fitzsimons of the Food Research and Action Center. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you for having me. The New Orleans community is mourning the loss of a Palestinian-American teenager killed in the West Bank last month. 17-year-old Tawfiq Abdel-Jabbar is one of the 94 children among the 370 Palestinians killed in clashes on the West Bank since October 7th, according to the United Nations. In late January, over 100 cars formed a motorcade in his memory along a New Orleans highway. I spoke with his father, Hafez Abdel-Jabbar, earlier this week from the West Bank, and I asked him what happened to his son. What I know and what happened uh, is my son was traveling from one piece of property to the, another piece of property with a friend, meeting with other friends so they can do a barbecue. And uh, as he was traveling, he was, uh, I think, ambushed by a settler, retired police officer, a soldier, we're not sure. There was three different weapons used. The truck was hit with 10 bullets. Uh, four of them is very clear to the driver's side and two of them to the passenger side. But luckily, thanks God, the passenger had ducked and uh, he's 16 years old also. He's an American citizen. 
and uh, they was traveling uh, towards the village uh, on a dirt road uh, from the mountain. And that's when he was struck and uh, lost control of the car and uh, flipped three times or four times and it came to stop. How did you learn that your son had been killed? One of my friends called me and said, uh, your son truck uh, had flipped on the dirt road. And uh, I said, where? And he told me where. So we, we rushed over there and that's how I find my son in the car shot in the head. Israeli officials say that they have launched an investigation. Are they sharing any of that investigation and the findings with you? They have not shared anything with me personally, no. They said they did, but they have not shared. They know who did it. They said they made comments to me that they know who did it, but he's not under arrest until they finish their investigation. I'm not sure why. Do you trust the results of the investigation when they'll be complete? I, I cannot trust them, no. I don't trust anything that they do. I hope my government can step in and uh, do their own investigation so we can come to a conclusion who shot my son. When you say your government, you're referring to the American government, is that right? Yes, ma'am. I'm an American citizen, been there since 1996. Five of my kids was born in the U.S. in Gretna, Louisiana. My wife is an American citizen, so my government is the American. And my son was born and raised for 16 years in Gretna, Louisiana. So I'm seeking help from my government, from my president, to seek justice for Tawfiq. You moved your family to the West Bank in May of last year. Tell us a little bit about why. I was born here in, in, in Palestine, uh, in Mazar Sharkiyat, about 25 miles away from Jerusalem. My dad was born here. His dad was born here. The whole family, I can go back to 1870, 1880s. And I wanted to bring my kids so they can spend a little bit of time here. But uh, this is what happened in the first nine months. I've only been here for nine months. You mentioned you're seeking help from the U.S. government. Can you tell us about who you've been in touch with, who has reached out to you, or what you've heard from the American government? I've just been getting calls from the, from the, from the consulate here. I'm trying to reach to senators, congressmen, trying to put pressure on, uh, on the Israeli government to allow us to do an investigation uh, to see who did, who did that to my son. All I've seen is just a comment from the White House speaker, I guess, and that was it. I haven't seen anything yet. There's no movement. Can I ask about your family? I know Tafik has several siblings as well. How are they doing? Uh, it's, a, it's a bit tough uh, for my wife. I have two daughters, uh, eight and six years old, and I have a 12-year-old boy and a 21-year-old boy. It's a bit tough. My eight-year-old, she kept asking me, uh, I don't understand what happened to him. So I kept telling her what happened. And then in a polite way, trying to explain to her that he's in heaven, she still says, I just don't understand. Can you explain it to me? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Hafiz, my colleague uh, Robbie Chavez has been reporting on your son's death from New Orleans, and he spoke to the vice principal of his school there who said that Tawfiq was larger than life, and he called him a big teddy bear and said that the school was absolutely reeling after his death. What do you want us to know about your son? <clears throat> my son was full of life. A 17 years old, always happy and smiles. Never said anything to hurt anybody's feeling, no matter who it is, no matter what color he is, no matter what religion he is. He plays football. He's full of life. He went to Muslim academy schools. He went to Christian Brother Martin school. He had dreams of engineering. They took all that away from him. What does justice took... look like for you right now? There's no justice. I think we lost human, yeah, humanity. <laughs> my government, my president, we claim democracy, we claim human rights, and we claim that nothing should be done against humanity. And now our own guns is killing our own children. And my son, it's a big example. And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't matter if he's an American citizen or he's from Mexico, or he's Latin, or he's Chinese, or he's white, or Jewish, or Muslim, or children shouldn't be killed. People shouldn't be killed for no reason, like my son did. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us and for sharing the memory of your son. Thank you. Thank you.
special counsel's report on President Biden's handling of classified documents draws a spotlight on concerns about his re-election campaign. On that and the other major political stories shaping the week, we turn to the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That is New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. Great to see you both. So special counsel Robert Hur released his report on uh, the president's handling of those classified documents. The investigation we know did find some classified documents during their search. This was at President Biden's Delaware home, this tattered box in a garage, among others. But he did conclude the evidence was not sufficient for criminal charges. Jonathan, what was your reaction to that decision and how it's being received? Well, I mean, great that the decision, you know, not charging the president, terrific. Um, the other thing about the report that was good is that it con compared and contrasted yeah. um, President Biden versus what uh, former President Trump did. And that is the thing that I think everyone needs to remember. When classified documents were found at the home and all the other places of, of President Biden, President Biden and his administration cooperated, gave them back had authorities do searches. When when documents were found or believed to have been at the former president's um, residences, uh, he stonewalled. He lied about handing them all over. And that's why, that's why he was indicted. And so anyone who's trying to conflate the two situations is being disingenuous. So... Um, that's what I have to say about that. Well, David, we know he did. The special counsel went to great lengths to say there were several material distinctions between the two cases. Is that resonating with the public? Yeah, I think so. I think people know the Mar-a-Lago case is more serious. But, you know, Biden was sloppy. Uh, he did share classified material with the ghostwriter, apparently. I think, frankly, it was unattractive of him last night to blame it all on staff. Maybe staff was partially to blame. But I don't think that's what leaders do, that they blame the team. Uh, but nonetheless, as Jonathan said, he cooperated, it was sloppy, he said, let's rectify this. And if Donald Trump, when they came to him about his documents, had said, yeah, I cooperate, he probably wouldn't be in the mess he's in. Well, we also know the special counsel chose to comment on Biden's memory function in that report, saying he had, quote, significant memory problems. He wrote this, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. Jonathan, what did you make of that inclusion uh, in the report? Does, does that... You trying to that, trigger me on that? Your face <laughs> so, perhaps says it all, but please. It... it and that wasn't the only place where he right. talked, about the, uh, talked about the president's age. I thought those reports were supposed to be just the facts. That was gratuitous. A lot of the other ones were gratuitous. We've spent way too much time talking about this president's age. And I'll say it again. When Ronald Reagan was the oldest person to ever be in the White House and to run for re-election, I don't recall a lot of people within his own party talking about the fact that we need to get another person, he's too old. And what, what uh, Counsel Herr did was feed lines to Republicans who want to make the president's um, memory and, and capabilities and whether he's senile a, a, a talking point gives them some fodder. But what he's also, what Counsel Herr has also done is given bedwetting Democrats another reason to complain about the president's age. Meanwhile, they're not focused on the fact that the 82-year-old president of the United States has an incredible record in the three years he's been president. I wish people would focus on that. And the fact that he m mixed up, you know, the president of Egypt with the president of Mexico, I did the same thing on, around this table when talking about the governor of Virginia. Remember when I said Governor Northam and the two of you, your heads popped off. You're like, well, who's he talking well, about? a former governor. A former governor, but and still. And also, to be fair, you are not president of the United States. I know, yeah. but <laughs> one can dream. <laughs> but, but let me ask you about this, David, because you did see, as you both mentioned, President Biden come out in a fiery press conference last night, and he referenced specifically one of the mentions that Counsel Her made about him, his failure to remember when his son, Bo, died. Have a listen to how the president responded. How in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away. David, the White House used the word gratuitous, was it? Uh, Two-thirds. You know, I, I think the, the special counsel used, talked about the age because his job is to think through how a jury would think. 
And the argument was the jury would not convict the guy because they think he'd be a well-intentioned guy with memory problems. Nonetheless, prosecutors are also not allowed to insult people who they don't charge because they, the, the people they're insulting don't get their day in court to fight back. And so this is prosecutorial standards, and, and I think he sort of very much flirted or went over the line on that. On the age issue, I think it's a perfectly <coughs> legitimate issue. Listen, I've been interviewing Joe Biden for 30 years. He's not as quick as he was. My, I, I say he was a pitcher, used to throw 94, he now throws 87. So the age is a factor, and you gotta think it's 86 he will be if he's reelected. Totally legitimate issue. His staff think, seems to think it's a legitimate issue because they act like he is a big problem. I was stunned that he turned down the, the Super Bowl interview for the second year in a row this time. Your guy is behind. You have a chance for an easy interview to talk to tens of millions of people, and you turn it down because they're so cautious the staff thinks he'll say something stupid? Now, my own personal opinion, based on my own direct contact and my reporting, is that his judgment is, his memory may sometimes slip, but his judgment is good. And he absolutely runs the White House. He's in charge of that administration. He's completely sharp enough to do that. But will he be able to do that in five years? I think it's a legitimate issue for voters to think about. I know we're going to be talking about this a lot more, but I do want to get both of your takes on another issue this week because the Supreme Court did hear arguments related to the Colorado case that's seeking to remove former President Trump from their primary ballot. It doesn't seem like they're likely to do that based on, on some of the concerns we heard from the justices, but what are, what's your takeaway, Jonathan, from how the justices are looking at it and the impact of this decision? I mean, if we are to judge the, 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 the arguments on their face, it seems like we're headed to what, eight to one or unanimous decision to keep his name on, on Colorado's Republican primary ballot. This might be the one and only time we get a unanimous decision, especially when we think about the fact that this is a 6-3 conservative supermajority where the pendulum swings from Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson all the way to the six, <laughs> six conservatives on the far right. And yet it seems like they are all pretty much in agreement here. So that's what I found the, the most amazing takeaway I took from the hearings. What about you, David? Yeah, unsurprising. I, there was no way the Supreme Court was gonna get in, uh, wanna get involved in the middle of an election. Uh, and I was comforted by the lines of questioning, particularly the idea, as Justice Roberts said, that the 14th Amendment is not there to empower states. The, federal, the 14th Amendment is there to take, take power away from states and give it to the federal government. And the idea that each state gets to choose basically who can be president, can choose for the other states, uh, as several justices said, it just doesn't seem like a, a smart argument. So I, I'm relieved that this whole issue seems to be about to go away. I also need to ask you both about this, the year that was this week in Congress. It just <laughs> felt like everything happened. Jonathan, we came as close as we ever have in decades to having actual immigration reform. Failed when Republicans backed away after a deal from four months of negotiating. How, what's your takeaway from how this unfolded? Um, it just says to me, once again, that Speaker Johnson's not in control, um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's not in control, Senator Langford, who was the Republican who negotiated with Murphy and, and Cinema, is not in control. Donald Trump is in control. Donald Trump signaled before the text was even presented weeks earlier, don't do the bill, don't, don't do this bill. And the bill, even though it got, what, 67 votes on the procedural, it's not going, even if it gets out of the Senate, it's not going anywhere in the House. So that's, that's what's so unfortunate about what's happening. And leave aside the competence of Speaker Johnson and the mess that he had to deal with uh, in, in his own chamber. It's just nothing's going to get done. Did Republicans miss their best chance for some kind of border bill? Oh, for sure, for a generation, yeah. But that's not the least of it. I wish it was just uh, Trump said, I need an election issue, so don't pass this bill, and they cynically did it. I wish that's all it was. It's much deeper than that. The Republicans are not only bowing to Trump. Trump is inside their brains. They're thinking like Trump. And so in a couple things. So how does democracy work? You have a negotiation. The two parties meet. You have a compromise. You hope to improve on the status quo. This was the most one-sided compromise I've ever seen. Yeah. The Republican Party got pretty much everything they wanted. Democrats got nothing. And still, the Republican, after Republicans arguing, I can't support this because it doesn't have everything I want. And that's the Trump's myth of the dictator, that I'll come in there and you'll get everything you want. So they're beginning to think like Trump. And then on foreign policy, I'm a conservative. I was rooting for Republicans for decades, Ronald Reagan, John McCain, Mitt Romney. These were internationalists. Mm. They believed America has a role in trying to preserve a stable world order. 
we now had a majority of Republicans in the Senate and an implacable seeming majority in the House who are going to who want to cut the Ukraine funding bill, the ultimate isolationist act which would destroy American credibility and sentence a nation to servitude. Uh, and so the fact that this is the Republican Party, I thought I was unshockable. And I remain profoundly shocked this week. Jonathan, were you shocked the same way? Or did you see this coming, that Republicans would block it? Oh, no, no. I, I, no, I saw this coming. But the, the, the thing that worries me the most is what happens on March 1st, the first funding deadline. What happens on March 8th? Um, if, if we're going down a road where we're going to uh, a government shutdown that could be a government shutdown, we can't get out of. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, thank you so much. Great to see you. Kwame Alexander, an award-winning author and producer, has just released his latest work. It's an anthology by black poets called This is the Honey. I spoke to him earlier as part of our arts and culture series, Canvas. Kwame Alexander, welcome to the News Hour. It's good to be here. So this new book is a collection of contemporary black poets. The title of the book comes from a poem included in here by Mahogany L. Brown. The first lines of it, which are so beautiful, the first lines read, there is no room on this planet for anything less than a miracle. We gather here today to revel in the rebellion of a silent tongue. Why did this give you the title of the book? What did you want to put out into the world? Well, the idea that, yeah, we deal with drama and trauma, but there's also triumph. We deal with woe, but there's also wonder. Like amidst all the divisiveness and the uncertainty that's happening in this world, I wanted to give us something that would uplift us that would give us a little bit of that hope that would bring us together. How do you pick poems? How did you invite people to be a part of this? I sort of viewed this book like you would um, a day in your life. So you wake up in the morning, the sun is out. It's, it's promise. And so this first section of the book is gonna be poems of hope and promise and joy. You greet your family, the people who you love, the people who love you. So the next section of the book is gonna be love poems. And then, of course, you go out into the world and you're dealing with all the craziness. And so you're going to have poems that challenge us, that are obstacles. Mm -hmm. And then next, you're going to sort of take that lunch break. Or in my case, when I worked in corporate America, I'd go to the restroom and just sort of chill a little bit <laughs> just to get my bearings and to say a prayer. So you're going to have your devotions. Mm -hmm. And of course, the last part of the book is you come home and it's a long day and you eat food and you share and you're grateful. And so you're going to have praise poems. So I thought about that as the metaphor. Mm -hmm. And then I just sort of started looking for poems and poets that fit. There's some incredible work in here. There's a poem from Morrison Shire, who's one of my personal favorites. Uh, Ruth Foreman has this eight-line poem in there that is just so powerful. You have an original poem in here as well, right? It's called How We Made You. Right. Tell me about that. Oh, so Stephanie, my wife, and I were together. We were married for 24 years. And when the uncoupling happened, I didn't want my daughter to think that it was the divorce that defined us, or was the things that didn't go right. I wanted to let her know that it was about, you know, not about the storm, but about the rainbow, that we, that we love each other, that we are, we are very good friends, and that we built a lot together. We built a business, we built a beautiful daughter. So I want to focus on that. So that poem deals with um, how we made you, and it's really all about love. What was it like for you after she read that poem, your daughter? Has she read it yet? Has she read it? It's a better question. <laughs> Look, when I, wrote that, when I wrote that memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night, I had it on the counter. And my kid, she's 15, she comes in and she says, Dad, we're studying memoir in school now. How cool would it be if I read your memoir? She's like, I'm not going to do it, but how cool would it be? <laughs> so I doubt she's read it yet. Speaking of that memoir, it has been about a year now almost since it's been out. That was an intensely personal blend of poetry and prose that you put out in that, uh, the memoir called Why Fathers Cry at Night. All this time later, what's it like for you to have that out in the world? That is a great question because I have, you know, I have wrestled with realizing that this book is out in the world still. Really? Because it's a memoir about these challenges that I've had dealing with the fact that in 2017 my mother passed, my marriage started sort of breaking down, and my oldest daughter and I um, had an argument that just blew up into mm -hmm. an estrangement. And so all these things happened. And so writing the book allowed me to deal with it, to heal from it, and then to get on a path to sort of figure it out, which I did. So now the book is out. I'm a much better person, but I'm like, oh, the book is still out, all the stuff I went through. But hopefully it helps people. It offers some insight 
and some inspiration for people who are dealing with their own things. Kwame, you are nothing if not prolific. Your Newbery Award-winning New York Times bestselling book, The Crossover, was made into a Disney Plus series that won you your first Emmy. What was that moment like? <laughs> what was it like? Well, somebody asked me, was it a dream come true to win an Emmy Award? And I was like, no, because it was never a dream. You know, I wanted to write good books. And so the fact that this book that got rejected by 22 publishers, the fact that this book, um, which came out six years, seven years ago, won an Emmy Award for a TV adaptation, it just speaks to the power of poetry to me, how, how it can translate and transfer um, across different mediums. And I think poetry ultimately is about making us feel better and hopefully the TV show did that. The Emmy certainly did that for me. Well, you've been carrying that Emmy around everywhere. I'm going to show people here a photo of you with the Emmy on your lap on the flight home. Tell me about that. Well, they made me check the bag. <laughs> I wanted to put it in the overhead, and it didn't fit. So I said, well, let me take something out, and I did. Um, I that is a flex. Out. That's a flex. <laughs> hey, it didn't fit. All of your work, though, all of your writing, it's really grounded in, in who we are as a country, who we are as a people, and where we are. I remember reading this op-ed that you wrote for the LA Times earlier this year on MLK Junior Day. You wrote about the first protest you went to back in 1978 in New York. You wrote about studying Dr. King's famous Selma speech with the how long, not long call and response. And you said that there was hope embedded in those words. You wrote this, in the war room of our red, white, and weary blues, we become pioneers in this renewal by awakening our conscious, summoning our courage, then treading the stony road through a tunnel of hope. Where do you find that hope today? You know, I, I still find it in words. I still find um, a world of possibility in language and literature. I think when a child sees themselves in a book, the book is a mirror. It shows them who they are and what they're capable of and gives them some sort of experiences outside of what we're thinking. When you show a child a book, a book can be a window, and it can show a kid someone else or another community. I think ultimately, these words can connect us to ourselves and to each other and allow us to become better human beings because we're, empath we're empathetic and we're connected. So, so for me, that's where the hope comes from. It comes through the power of words to make us imagine a better world or a different world. The book is This is the Honey. The author is Kwame Alexander. Kwame, thank you so much. Great to see you. Thank you very much, Amna. Be sure to tune into Washington Week with The Atlantic tonight on PBS. I'll be joining moderator Jeffrey Goldberg and his panel to discuss Donald Trump's influence on the collapse of the bipartisan border bill and the latest concerns about President Biden's age. And don't forget to watch Saturday's PBS News Weekend for a look at the increased role of tech companies and social media in this year's election. And that is the News Hour for tonight. I'm Amna Nawaz. On behalf of the entire News Hour team, Thank you for joining us and have a great weekend.